Amen. Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. If you have little ones through grade three and you'd like to have them in children's church, they can be dismissed at this time. Out to the foyer. Teachers will meet them there. You can pick them up when we're all done. For the rest of you, you'd like to turn, if you would, in your copy of Second God's Word, the New Testament, Second Corinthians chapter 7. As our little ones exit, I'd like to take a minute. Our president has called for a national day of prayer. So grateful that we have someone in the White House that actually thinks to do that. And so we're so grateful for the leadership there and for the faithfulness on uh, behalf of God to give us that. So I'd like you to, if you would pray with me, we're going to pray perhaps a little differently than the sign behind me said just a minute ago. I, I think about Daniel's the book of Daniel, I think about uh, Daniel and his prayer as he understood it was time for his people to come back from the 70 years. And his prayer was interesting, wasn't it? I don't know if you remember that prayer in chapter 9 and on, that um, Daniel owned a lot of what was going on in the country and in the nation. Even though Daniel himself wasn't part of that, he was part of a nation that was. And so I'd like to pray with that in mind as we think about uh, our prayer time today, and think about our, our role as the church and all that's going on. Uh, we'd like to bow together and just lift our hearts together with me, if we would, just for a few minutes before we get into our time in the Word. Would you bow with me? Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you today for your great love for us, and we thank you that it is demonstrated so clearly uh, in Christ, in the gift of Christ to us, to redeem us. And Father, we pray today for, as you are well aware of what's going on, mercy today for our nation. But we certainly can't come before you and ask for your blessing as we continue as a nation in rampant sin. And so, Father, we pray for our leaders to truly recognize their need for God and to have wisdom in how to respond to this global crisis. Pray that you'll draw people to yourself as a result of their fear the fear of death and fear of punishment, which are legitimate fears. I pray, Lord, that you would draw people to yourself. I pray for, in this respect, revival in the church in America, for those churches that are dead and have not proclaimed your word or been about uh, making sure your people were discipled and growing in the light in a dark place. I pray for a renewal there, Father. I pray for uh, other pastors around the world and certainly in the U.S. to be bold in their proclamation of the truth of God's word, that they will reaffirm its centrality to their uh, their ministry and their message to move away from the foolishness of man's thoughts and know that you wrote a book and you have something to say and that we should be focusing on those things. And I pray for a return to that. I pray for believers or those who would call themselves such who uh, walk around in unbelief and disobedience to repent and return. I pray for the uh, for you, Lord, to purify your church around the world, for uh, this church to arise as a light in a world, both in word and deed, that is now gripped in fear. For of all things, we know that fear is not something that should dominate us. We know that you have not given us this fear, spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. And so, Father, we understand uh, the times, uh, they have been this way many for much, much time. We, we certainly think about uh, 1917 and how much fear gripped the nation then and how much adjustment had to be done 
And Lord, we know that uh, many nations deal with this on a regular basis. We in the United States have been insulated in some respects. And Lord, we thank you for the trial that perhaps it is to us, that it is an opportunity for us to examine our own hearts before you and to recognize, as we read and sang just a minute ago, that our uh, I will build my uh, heart upon your love. It is a firm foundation. I'll build all that I have upon uh, my knowledge of your relationship to me and that I will trust you. We sing those words so easily, but when it becomes time to trust, we uh, seem to initially rely on our own ability to reason out the problem. But Lord, we want to stop it with you first, knowing that you are sovereign in all things and have allowed this difficulty to come. And I pray that uh, you will strengthen our hearts too. Help us to be filled with peace and joy then as we trust you uh, to be faithful to your promises in your word as we minister to other people. And Lord, may you be glorified. May your church be strengthened. And may lost people be brought to Christ in these difficult times. And Lord, I pray all this in the name of your Son, knowing that you hear when we pray. You're ever-present help in time of trouble. And we are grateful that we can call on you. And we pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen. It's good to be back in the Word of God with you. Looking forward to having that prayer time with you. I pray that uh, you'll continue that way, that you'll find as you think about things that are going on around you, that it draws you more to the Word, uh, more to prayer, uh, more to fellowship with Him. Those are the right responses, and so we're grateful for those opportunities. As I was thinking about um, our passage this week, as we really dig into it, I was thinking about word choices, and obviously can make a big difference in how people receive what you have or need to say. And I was thinking also, you know, let your speech be with grace, seasoned with salt. You remember how Colossians tells us to answer each one. We maybe know how to answer each one. But um, an article caught my eye because I was just kind of thinking about word choices, and it was early in the week on Monday. And uh, the, the website's called thebalancecareer.com, and there's an article by resume expert Allison Doyle. It was entitled, 30 Words to Include and Avoid in a Resume. And I just thought, well, there, there's word choices for you. I mean, if you're going to think about writing a resume, which I'm not, by the way. I was just thinking about word choices. And uh, so you're not getting rid of me that easy. You don't think I'm uh, leading to something. I'm not. All right, just word choices, and it popped up. And, and I love to read, and so I read an article about it. And um, I won't go through the entire article, but she started by saying, uh, just obviously, quote, your resume is your first opportunity to make a good first impression. You don't have much time to make that impression, she says. She goes on to note that, according to U.S. News and World Report, it takes less than 20 seconds for a hiring manager to make a decision about you based on your resume. 20 seconds. That's the average. And uh, what that means is, for you, is that nearly every word you include in your resume can either help you get noticed or knock you out of contention almost immediately. And then she made some, she made some recommendations. She said... Um, she advises, be specific. She said, you don't want to be vague in your resume. Hiring managers are tired of hearing cliched words. And then she listed a lot of the words that you want to avoid. Because I was like, so what are the cliched words in resumes? Uh, because I haven't written one in a very long time. And here are some of them. Uh, she says, avoid words like team player and hard worker. She said, avoid phrases at all costs. These phrases, go getter. I think outside the box. I'm a go-to person or I'm detail-oriented. And she says, uh, one of the worst and most common mistakes 
she says you can make in a resume is to say you're detail-oriented and then have a spelling error on your resume, obviously. So uh, then she went through a list of suggested words and her advice, and I won't go through all of them, but she says use action words. She says hiring managers like to see action words in resumes because they demonstrate specific places that you took leadership and that produced results. She said that resumes should include power words, which include popular skills, words specific to your industry, keywords from both job listings and the company website. And then finally, she said to use values. She said that numbers really demonstrate how your efforts benefited the employer in an actual value. And so that coupled with knowing which words to include in your resume and which to avoid, she says, will impress the hiring manager and get you closer to your next job. And that was an interesting read. And uh, the words were interesting. You can look that website up if you want. There was a whole lot there and uh, way more than I was going to give to you at the beginning of a sermon. But I'd like you to turn, and I think you can make the connection right away, if you would, turn in your copy to Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, if you would. And it's going to pick up in for though, and we're going to read all the way through verse 16, if you would. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. Verse 9. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Verse 11. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter, verse 12. So although I wrote to you, I was not, was not for the sake of the offender nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. Let's stop right there. And what we're doing today, really, as we look at this section, is referencing a letter Paul had to write that he called his sorrowful letter. And a letter he penned, no doubt, and labored over the word selection as he did it. And we know that because when we look at first, or Second Corinthians chapter 2, he says about his writing, he says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Now, we don't have this letter included in our Bibles, so we don't know what his word choice was. But again, word choice can obviously make a big difference in how people receive what you have or need to say. And now, ministry sometimes demands strong, confrontive words. And if you've done ministry for any length of time, you know that this is the issue. Sin crouches at the door. False teachers are everywhere. Uh, Satan seeks to destroy the work of God. People choose to willingly sin and bring into the fellowship that sin. Uh, these are just circumstances where you would have to have some strong confrontive words. And, and these are sometimes times for those kinds of words. And these words are meant to produce obedience, which can only come about when there is repentance, which can only come about when there is sorrow over sin. And so, though he had not written just to make them sad, sadness was the path to repentance and repentance the path to obedience, and we're going to see that in the passage. Now, in fact, in chapter 2, verse 9, referring to the severe letter, he said that very thing. He says, 
Uh, for to this end also I wrote, that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. So he labored with much sorrow and tears over the hard letter, and then he, he qualifies that and says, listen, I wrote this to produce obedience in you. And so, in other words, between the two passages, we really see Paul's intent. So it helps us to understand what must have been some of his word choice. And he was concerned about their obedience, and it was, and it overshadowed his concern for their sorrow. And he didn't really want them to wallow in sorrow, but he really didn't want them to walk around in disobedience either. So apparently the word choice led to fruit. And last week we saw, in the last three principles of spiritual response from a faithful ministry, we saw a reconciliation beginning to occur between the church and Paul. When Titus comes back from the delivering the sorrowful letter, Paul tells the church uh, in in our um, in our current letter that he that we're reading now, he's going to tell the church that uh, Titus came back and he reported to us. It says, uh, "Your longing," and each of these spiritual responses is really qualified by the last part of the sentence. For me, your longing for me, Paul says. So the sorrowful letter produced some fruit, and. Uh, you're longing to see me again, to hear me again, to sit under my teaching again. All those kinds of things are kind of implied with their longing and to have a relationship restored to what it was. And so uh, that was principle number five in response last week to the hard words Paul had to write. Uh, he knew that there was some spiritual response taking place among spiritual people in their longing for the fellowship. So for mutual ministry, for mutual caring and mutual benefit. So uh, Paul also tells the church that Titus mentioned uh, it, their regret as a response to his sorrowful letter. And he says this. He says, uh, he calls it your mourning. And uh, Paul is encouraged and comforted by this. Why? Well, they were sorrowful over what? Well, they were sorrowful over their sin against Paul, over their breach of that relationship, over what uh, they had done to bring him pain. And that was principle number six we saw last time. And you can catch up with that online if you'd like. But it's a response to hard words Paul had to write. He knew there was some spiritual response taking place uh, because among spiritual people, there was an intense sorrow over a broken relationship. They didn't just move on uh, and just say, well, whatever, it was past, don't worry about it. They just wanted to make it right. And lastly, concerning their personal reaction to the letter in relation to their broken relationship to Paul, because that's how it starts here, their letter produced, Titus said, a zeal, a zeal. It's also translated fierceness, we saw that, because we, we saw that zeal has two sides to it. It's not just being excited about something, as the English would perhaps imply. Uh, we saw that the definition from the Scriptures uh, is such a strong love for someone as it is here for Paul and certainly for something that you hate anything that harms that individual or that thing. So it's a combination of a love and a hate where you have zeal, you have an overwhelming affection, and at the same time an overwhelming protection of that relationship. And so Paul says those three things were part of this response to me, and that was principle number seven that Paul uh, uh, in a response to the hard words Paul had to write, the first three things that Titus mentioned to them uh, is that he knew there was a spiritual response taking place among spiritual people in their renewed zeal for what? Well, for the solidarity of a relationship between people in the church. They were protective of that relationship. It wasn't easily fractured. See, They weren't easily offended. They weren't easily put off. See, And there will be an intensity among spiritual people, a zeal that will not allow relationships to be broken. And on all of these nouns, feelings expressed uh, by the church, and Titus is relaying them to Paul, and at the end of each one is the implied, for me. So all of those, Paul says, as it begins, there begins to be a movement in this coldness in the church towards Paul. It's a movement in these first three things that have to do with reconciliation. And so it's a movement in the right direction. And, and those, these two words really focus the first part of the response in the sorrowful letter 
towards a reconciliation with Paul. And these three words really describe a faithfulness that Paul longed for. It's what Paul longed to for from the Corinthian church to him, many of whom he had led to faith. And it means uh, when that happens that you, you have a longing to do right to the other person. Even if it's past, you're going to fix it. It means you're going to mourn uh, whenever you do anything that could cause harm to that relationship because it's so precious to you. And it means that your faithfulness will be zealous of anything that could wreck that relationship. Those three things are in place in spiritual people inside the church as it relates to, to relationships between one another. And the Holy Spirit led him then, as we think about this first topic, he led him to choose the words for the sorrowful letter, and they carried the weight. Listen, they carried the weight of God's purpose for the church. Okay? They carried the weight of God's purpose for the church. As hard as they were, they carried the weight of God's purpose for the church. And that faithful ministry of strong, confrontive words, as hard as they were to write, were used by the Lord to produce fruit. And then Paul had some more things to say as a result of Titus' report, and it has to do with, of course, the letter that he wrote. And so he moves from how they responded to him to how they responded to God and about uh, all that's been going on and, and their response to God was right. And let's look at verses 8 and 9 because we're going to move on to there now. All right? 2 Corinthians 8, look in your copy of God's Word. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that it caused the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. Verse 9, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Now, let's break these two verses down. They seem kind of confusing, but they really aren't. Um, look at verse nine, he said, or verse uh, eight, he says, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter. So here's the deal. He knew the letter he had sent was very harsh. He knew it was very confrontational and, and very severe. And he knew that it would strongly confront their sin and he knew it could produce sorrow. And he made them take a hard, here's the, he made them take a hard look at what they were really doing. And, and our next, uh, principle of faithful ministry, uh, and this is really where it is, in the course of faithful ministry, if you're, if you're doing it right, if you're doing it right, you will need to confront sin. And that's going to cause some sorrow among those you minister to. That is part and parcel of the ministry. You have to confront some sin once in a while. And that is going to cause some sorrow to the people you minister to. And that should not surprise you. Uh, his purpose was not to make them sad, and, and you should not be trying to overwhelm people with emotion, and I try not to do that. I'm not trying to elicit an emotional response at any time by manipulating the ministry that I have with you. I don't try to create some kind of really sad story at the end and then have a comfort. The Holy Spirit's perfectly capable of doing exactly what he wants to do in the lives of individuals, and he doesn't need me to kind of weave some words around to create elicit some kind of um, unrealistic or not real response. And Paul's not trying to do that. He, he didn't write to make them sad, but to cause something to happen. And sadness was part of that. And then he says, I know it affected you in this way. And he says, I do not regret it. And the reason he doesn't regret it is because of what it, what? Produced. See? And, and this is something Paul wants them to understand. So we need to understand it too, because it's essential. And, and we'll get back to this in just a moment. But this is part, I think, that can seem so confusing. So Paul says, my letter caused you sorrow. I don't regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that it caused you sorrow. And it's like a circular sentence that doesn't say anything. A lot like listening to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talk. Um, you come out of there and just think, none of that made any sense. But this makes sense, and we'll break this down. Okay, but it seems like a circular sentence. But it makes a lot of sense. Paul says, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. No doubt, um, 
during the period of time when he was waiting for Titus to come back and he was feeling anxious and and feeling worried and he's feeling depressed and having no rest for his spirit and no rest for his flesh and we've looked at all of that before so we won't go through that again. During that period of time he had some emotional remorse about having written it because he was afraid it might have pushed them further away and, and that is what he appears to mean when he says, though I did regret it. Because I didn't regret it. Why? Because it caused the fruit. Though I did regret it. And this is principle number nine. And, and you will you will resonate with this if you've had to do this. In the course of faithful ministry, you will need to confront sin. And that's going to cause you some feelings of doubt if you're doing it with the right heart. So you're going to deliver that hard message to that person who is walking away from the Lord or walking in open sinfulness or whatever it is. And then when you get all done with that, you're going to have a little bit of doubt in your mind. And that's part of the right heart, I think, that you need to bring to the ministry. It's a very important note because when you're dealing with people who need to be confronted, you're always going to feel this. You'll say, I have to be strong. I will be strong. This calls for strong words. This calls for confrontation. And just speaking personally, very, very openly, you lose sleep over it and you pray about it. And then I like to write it out or I make some notes so that I stay on point and I remain biblical about it and not emotional. And then you do the confrontation. And and uh, inevitably, when you're all finished, you always have this feeling of doubt, some guilt feelings or regret. You think, you know, maybe I pushed too hard. Maybe, maybe they couldn't receive it and maybe the effect is going to be to drive this person away. And that's likely how Paul felt. In that intervening time, he's waiting for Titus to come back. He's thinking, wow, maybe I pushed too hard. Maybe it was too much. And, and that statement by Paul is comforting because anyone who has served as a minister for any length of time or has had to confront sinfulness in the life of someone they know or perhaps a family member knows what that feels like. And sometimes when you're put in a place where for the sake of the church or for the sake of the individual and certainly their impact on the church, you are in a confrontational types of, a type of situation. And, and at that time, you're thinking about the immorality and you're thinking about the sin and you're confronting this issue with the individual or the individuals, and it's a difficult affair for ministers to have to do, and, and we see it described fairly often in the Word of God. It's not, it's not in a secret or it's not in a corner. Paul in Galatians 2.11 said he had to vigorously oppose Peter, who was very hip, hypocritical at that point. He wasn't interacting with any kind of, uh, of the Gentiles, and he just kind of went back to the, kind of the way of the Pharisees, and Paul had to come and say, look, you're obeying the law again, you're doing all the law things, and this is not what you're supposed to be doing. And so he had to vigorously oppose it. Galatians 2.11 uses those words. Paul told Timothy and every minister after him in 2 Timothy 4.1, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. So this is all going to happen. The judging of the living and the dead is going to happen. God has already clearly understood what's going on and going to make clear what was good and what was bad because that's going to happen. And by his appearing and his kingdom, verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. So when you feel like it, when you don't feel like it, center on the Word of God in your ministry. And then he says this, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And that we read through that and we think, okay, that sounds good. Preach the Word. Do it when you feel like it. Do it when you don't feel like it. And then we read reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. But that reprove is the Greek verb el inko. It literally, literally the mean, the word means bring into the light. That's what it means. So something that's sitting in the dark, you bring into the light. But here is, in its context, it is to expose the fault and correct it with words. So part of the ministry, Paul says, that is going to be part and parcel of what you'll have to do in the church 
is going to be to chide or admonish or reprehend someone, generally with a suggestion of shame that's involved in what they're doing. So it's bringing something to the light, but it's more like turning the light on and seeing something very ugly. That's the idea. And that's what Paul says, do these things. Your first focus is preach the word and do it whether you feel like it or not. And then the very next thing is to reprove. And this is precisely the idea that is expressed in Matthew 18, 15. In fact, that's exactly the word. Here has, here's how it's translated here. It says, if your brother sins, go and, and here's our word, show him his fault. You see, that gives us a real idea of the turning on the light. The idea is to show him his fault. That's the word reprove in four English words. In private. So go to them and reprove them. Turn the light on for their sin in private. Now this isn't your personal preference for their life. Okay, this isn't how you wish they would live and you know they're doing things that you wouldn't do. All that's part of a discipleship relationship. That's not part of this. This is chapter and verse. There's a problem and you're coming and you're turning the light on in their life and saying this is very ugly and you need to stop. Okay? So it's all through the Word of God. Now, um, we have uh, the other word, which is rebuke, and it's it's also part of the hard words, and the word rebuke uh, is an interesting word. Epitamao, a compound noun. Epi is on, and tamao is value. So literally, it's to put a value on, to set a value. In this context, what is it? It's to show the depths to which the individual has sunk. I'm putting a value on what you're currently participating in, and that value is where? Very low. In order for it to go along with reprove and rebuke, uh, that's where it is. So these are hard things, and sometimes you have to do this, and you put it all out in the strongest way that you can. And then later on, you walk away and you say to yourself, I wonder if I was lacking compassion or grace. Or maybe it was too much. Maybe it was too firm. Maybe I was too strong. I hope I didn't push them in the wrong direction. So we see Paul struggling with this very same thing, see. And second-guessing himself, and he goes, I didn't regret it, though I did regret it. Questioning his word selection, like, like we saw at the opening. And granted, the person may not be where they need to be spiritually. And so their initial response to those words may be bad. There may be a response back that is is less than godly, and they might switch the whole table on you and say, well, that was very harsh to me. But really, their their take on it is irrelevant at that point because the fact of the matter is you had to come and have hard language to bring them back from iniquity and sin and all the things that they were involved with. So, But there's, there's always this, this um, there's always a lot of things going wrong in their life at that time, point, and they're not where they need to be. And and when you have to confront those issues, you have to say things that, and here it is, they're really beyond what you would normally be comfortable in saying in a relationship. See, That's the whole implication of the whole passage, see. You have to go beyond what your emotion would normally allow you to go because it's so serious. Soft words are not going to accomplish it at that point. That's why preach the word, be ready in season and out, when you feel like it, when you don't, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And so it's just so serious that you're not, you can't just do it like you would normally do it. At some point, you have to step in and say hard things. And just to illustrate that, and I think you can connect with this, I don't think there's a parent in this, in this room, and certainly not any in the world, who faithfully disciplines their children as they should, who hasn't finished with it and later had second guesses. Right, parents? Of course. 
Have you ever done that? I mean, have you ever disciplined your child and then later thought, you know, maybe I shouldn't have spanked him for that? Or, or was I angry when I did that? Was I taking out my frustration on them instead of being concerned about their future and their self-control and all the things that I want to see in their life? Were my words too hard? You know, did I spank them too hard? Should I have said what I said to them? Again, you're questioning your word choice. See, I think parents can understand this. And as your children grow, you'll understand it more because they'll come into that small window where spanking and the lecture have to occur in that short amount of time in order to rein in self-will and bring them to a point where they submit to your instruction so that someday later they'll submit to the Lord's instruction. See? And so, but when you do it, I mean, I certainly have been there. You know, those are the struggles of discipline and firmness and correction. And those are the things that always cause us this doubt right afterwards, kind of a regret, a questioning, because the stakes are so high and you just can't let it go. But then you wonder if you did it right, see? And, and this is what Paul's wrestling with. And that's why I've taught you that you should always pull that little one into your arms when you're all done spanking. And you hug them and you comfort them and you make sure that they know you love them. It's connected to how desperately you want them to walk with the Lord and how, how uh, opposed you are to them getting their own little way and doing what they want and being disrespectful and all that kind of stuff, see? And because you do what you do out of love, see? And you, you want them to know that and you want to make sure you're walking in the spirit before you even start. And like I've told you many times, you know, if, if there's a spanking that needs to take place and you're frustrated or angry, you go into your room and get yourself right with the Lord before you go and try to correct that little guy or girl. And make sure that you're doing it for the right purposes. And then you can go. Waiting a little bit is not going to matter. You can still be just as effective, you know, 20 minutes from now when you're, when you're controlled by the spirit and you know exactly what they've done wrong and you want, you can communicate that clearly and you can communicate it with the spanking clearly and then with the love that it comes afterwards and the, and the lecture and all the things that go on with that. Okay, so I think we all understand that. We all understand that sometimes when we confront a friend, we, we worry that maybe it was too much or too strong, and that's what Paul's feeling right now. So that's to be human, see, and, and to deal with, that's to be human and deal with spiritual issues. That is a normal reaction. To be human and then have to deal with spiritual issues, that is a normal response. Uh, did I do this right? See. And the reality for Paul, though, is, is this: he's just being transparent. So he doesn't have to tell them, I did regret it, right? Because that can, if, if they still have rebellion in the ranks, that's only going to fuel the rebellion, right? Oh, you did regret it. Well, you should have, Paul, because what you said was very unkind. And I didn't like it at all, see? So Paul's just being transparent. He's revealing his heart. And the reality is that he knew he was right. It had to be dealt with. So that's why he says, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, Okay. So in other words, emotionally, when I look back on it, I did regret it. Um, like a father who struggles with uncertainty about how firmly he disciplined his, his child that he loves, you know, needing to inflict pain and at the same time not wanting to inflict pain. And, and then you give that little speech and this, this is harder for me than it is for you, you know, all of that, at which your child will not understand until they have their own children. Okay. And then they'll understand it perfectly. And, and I think though, as you think about the regret, that's a good indicator when you have to do this hard thing. Having that regret's a good indicator that you're doing it right. Here it is, that, that you don't find any pleasure uh, with your child in spanking and chastening and rebuking and reproving, because I know parents who somehow seem to relish in that. Like, they're very harsh to their kid all the time, you know. Uh, the kids doesn't have anything in their life. You know, we tried as we raised our children, if we could say yes, we did say yes to their requests. 
if it fit inside the budget and it certainly wasn't outside what we thought would be good for them, we would say yes. Then you have a lot of things you can rein back. But a lot of parents, their kids are bare-boned already. They've taken everything away except the birthday. And then and then they are very harsh about it. They seem to really enjoy being hard on their kids. I've watched kids do, parents do this. Many of you who are in foster care, you know that those some of those parents were just like that, what I'm talking about. They have no remorse. They just are too harsh on their kids all the time, see? And that's not what we're talking about here. The good indicator is that you, you know you have to inflict some pain. You don't want to inflict it. And, and, and that portion of our letter tells us that Paul had no pleasure in rebuking and reproving, and it hurt him, and we saw that it depressed him, right? God who comforts the depressed. Paul goes to Macedonia. He is depressed. And the Lord comes and comforts him. And these are indicators of godly discipline, of firm letters that have to contain hard things. And there's no abusiveness in Paul. He finds no pleasure in the confrontation. And, and there's no ego at work here. And, and in confronting some in the church in this way, he proved that he, he, he was motivated by his love for them and his love for the truth. And he didn't want them to continue on the road they were on because that would affect their ability to be taught the truth later. And he, he was motivated by his fear of the consequences of their sin. And all those things weave its way into the fabric of how you confront sin. See, you're worried about their path and the consequences of that path later. See, it's in your mind constantly. And even with, with all these things in place, he had some short-term lingering regret uh, that always finds its way into the heart of one who disciplines and confronts the sinner. And then, and then we see Titus reported something else to him. And Paul can say, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, and he says, but only for a while. And that's is what we see explained in verse 9, where Paul is relaying you know, his take on the conversation with Titus, and he says, and now I rejoice, see, and now I rejoice. Well, the reason why he felt no regret any longer is, is that the grief caused by the letter was only for a while. And then he clarifies what can always seem to take, uh, you know, what he says in the worst possible way. You know, every time Paul says something, he sometimes qualifies it. So he says, you know, I did regret it. I see the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while, and now I rejoice. But he wants to make sure that, you know, they don't take it like he's rejoicing because they were sad. So he says, but now I rejoice. And then he qualifies. He says, what? Not that you were made sorrowful. Just being clear, you know, he says. I, 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 I'm I'm rejoicing, but I'm not rejoicing because you were made sorrowful. I didn't find any joy in causing you the pain that I caused you. Okay? Just confirm what we said a few minutes ago. There's no ego here. He wasn't happy. They were sad. And he just wants to make sure they know he wasn't happy. They were sad. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved. The only pleasure he got was from the positive response to uh, of the Corinthians towards him. And he's, he's saying, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of, here it is, repentance. You were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. And, and this is so important, and it's, it's really principle number 10, revealing Paul's faithful ministry. And even doing hard things, like confronting sin, and, uh, which caused him no end of worry and no end of regret and, and wondering if he did it right and all that. In the middle of all of that, you know that spiritual people are responding in a spiritual manner, which includes a sadness that leads to repentance. That's where you're headed. When someone's walking in unfaithfulness, when somebody's walking in, in ungodliness, when somebody's walking in, in open iniquity and rebellion against the Lord, and you are in that line where you can come and uh, you, you're a brother or sister in Christ and you're coming and doing that, uh, you are doing precisely what you want to do, and you don't want to make them sad, but you, you know that sadness is going to lead one of two places and you want it to lead to repentance. 
I rejoice, Paul says, because you were grieved into repenting. See, the grief that they experienced was not a useless remorse without some corresponding action to rectify the situation. See, that's what they were, that's what Paul was going for. And that word repentance here, and you know this, you've probably heard many sermons on it, it is the noun metanoia. Literal meaning is afterthought. That's what the word means, afterthought. But the meaning in English is not the emphasis here. So in other words, as an afterthought, I also changed out the spark plugs in case that was the problem. Okay, That's not what metanoia means in the scriptures. The emphasis is on a change of mind. That's what it means, an afterthought. It's a change after the original thought to a different thought. See, Metanoia is a change... Is to change what you think about something you've done or a purpose that you had. So it's to have completely different feelings about it. To be sorry, for sure, it's, it's going to include sorrow. In fact, that's always the precursor, which we're going to see in a moment. But here it is, to change your thoughts about something and then act differently. And that's illustrated really well, I think, in Luke chapter 3, verse 8. And we can kind of see people asking and interacting with John the Baptist here, and it gives you the feeling of what metanoia is going to look like in fruit, okay? A change in thought about what you're doing. And you can, you'll get it right away. Obviously, um, he's talking about sin, and John the Baptist is talking about wrath, and he's talking about the judgment that's going to come, and he's in the middle of his message, and, and he's, and he's has to say hard things, and he says this. He goes, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, that's a pretty hard thing to say, okay? I've never said that to anybody, you brood of vipers, okay? And I haven't said a lot of other things that Paul says to people, okay? Because it would come across very hard. I'm not sure that that's a bad thing, but I'd have never said, I just can tell you, I've never said you brood of vipers, okay? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And, and that's a hard thing to say to people in the middle of a sermon. That's not the way to influence you know, people and make friends, okay? So he's standing up, and he's uh, he had his meal of locusts and whatever, and then he goes out there and he makes this proclamation, you brood of vipers, who warned you? I mean, here's the big crowd. Isn't that what every minister wants? He wants the big crowd. So the big crowd's around him. And then he says to the big crowd, who warned you, you viper, to flee from the wrath that's going to come? And so now everybody's on alert, right? And they're like, oh my goodness, why am I even here? You know, especially if you're on the front, like three or four rows, that's a bad thing, okay? And then the people are fearful. And they're sorrowful. And they're thinking, man, I mean... You know, what is this about? And then he says this. He says, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with, there's our word, metanoia, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. In other words, in other words, don't claim a relationship to Abraham as your get-out-of-jail-free card, Okay? Get out of hell free card. That's that's not going to work for you, okay? Um, so he's kind of he's kind of uh, playing on what he perhaps what they're perhaps thinking. He doesn't know for sure if they're thinking that, but he's thinking it's likely some are. Hey, I'm a child of Abraham. I'm good. So you have to repent. You have to change your mind. In other words, about your sin, and it has to be abhorrent to you. And then in verse nine, he says, "Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees." So I mean, judgment is right here. It's it's impending. 
So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's another hard thing, right? So what is it? So well, some of you are not bearing any fruit, which means you're not a child of God. And now there are even more terrified and they ask, so, so what does that look like? I mean, changing our mind and calling out to God for forgiveness and then bearing fruit, which gives the proof of that relationship. What's that look like? And verse 10 says, and then the crowd were questioning him saying, then what shall we do? And so he would answer and say to them, and I won't read all of this, you can read this on your own time, because he goes through a number of uh, different uh, jobs that people have, and, and he just identifies them by their job. And so he says this, he says, uh, um, he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. So metanoia, a change of mind about your own selfishness and self-centeredness in your life that you've lived up to now is going to look like, in general, you're going to become uh, a very generous person right? Uh, just in general, it's going to change the way you look at what you have. And then in verse 12, he says, and some tax collectors also came to be baptized and they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And so he knows that they're obviously tax collectors. And he says to them, collect no more than what you've been ordered to. And, he, and so on and so on. And the soldier says, what do I do? And, you know, don't shake anybody down for money and be content with your wages and all, all that kind of stuff. So he just goes on, you know, one, uh, one job after another yells out, Hey, you know, What's metanoia look like in fruit for me? Well, here's what it looks like. And so they're counting the cost, see? They're realizing a change of mind is going to look a certain way. And it's not that you're going to earn salvation by this. It's just this is indicative that salvation has come, see? That's what it looks like. And so John says, that's what it looks like. And we start seeing that, you know, you know that true change has taken place. And in our passage, Paul says, for though I caused you sorrow uh, by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that it caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. See, and he refers to the earlier responses of reconciliation. Mark this, beloved. It, it's it's one it's one thing, and this can be helpful to you perhaps between your family relationships to start with, and and then on out. But it's one thing to restore a relationship with someone. Okay, and, and that's a good thing. It's another thing, I think, to see your unfaithfulness and your backbiting and all of those things as sinful. That's a, that's a completely different thing. It's one thing to come back and, and say, hey, I want to have a relationship with you. And if somebody is, has um, fervent love towards you, they'll probably say, okay. Because love covers what? A multitude of sins. So it's one thing to just establish a relationship back. It's another thing completely to recognize that what you did was wrong, see? And... and that you have to address before God, and, and that's part of it. I mean, that's part of real restoration, a recognition that the hostility and the enmity and the betrayal and the disrespect and the gospel was sinful. That's repentance, see. That's a change in mind about what you used to do and a vocalizing of what was wrong with it. And, you know, in, in my life in ministry, 28 years, I have had such a huge blessing baptizing people, and we, you know that I like to have uh, people in, in the baptism pool give their testimony to the church right there. Because that verifies that they are the right candidate, that they've come to faith, and the church sees them make that commitment to follow Christ. But some of the most wonderful testimonies I've heard with my ears, people who stood up and said, I was, I was a drunkard, and I was a thief, and I was immoral, you know, they, they, that was a change of mind, see? I was wrong about all of that. I, I, what I did was wrong. How I ordered my life was wrong, see? You know salvation has come when metanoia has come, see? It, ha it can't come apart from it. It's one of the things to say to God, I want to have a relationship with you. It's another thing altogether to do it like he says has to be done, which includes repentance. 
And so that's the issue. And, and certainly with regard to Paul and the Corinthians, what they did was indeed sinful towards him. And Paul had a fervent love for them. And so he, he still was, you know, giving that love to them, but they weren't receiving, he wasn't receiving it back. And so he wanted the, the relationship restored. And he would have taken it, however it would have come. But the principle really crosses over whether you're talking about a friendship or a marriage or a family. Yes, there can be a restoration on a human level and a reconstructing of a faithful love, but there has to also be sorrow that leads to repentance if it's going to be genuine and if it's going to last. See, If it's going to be genuine and it's going to last, there's got to be a change of heart about what you did. And then Paul, you know, really gold plates this response, if you will, that Titus reported to him. And he makes it the standard for us. He clearly marks out two ways of responding to sorrow over sin. And this is really, in my opinion, this is the diamond right here. Okay. If you're going to catch anything, this is, this is what you want to catch. He says this. He says, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. Verse 10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. So uh, wholehearted, I change my mind. I don't, I don't grab back on anything that I thought was any good of my own self. What I have done and how I've lived up till now has been absolutely wrong. Please forgive me. See? For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to what? And of course, you know, he's talking to brothers and sisters in Christ in Corinth. So the salvation thing perhaps is not going to be in play. But Paul puts it here because it is so vital and it crosses over in so many different directions. Not just in reconciliation with he and the church, but with you and the Lord, with the church and the Lord. Okay, it's exactly the same heart attitude, see? Leading to salvation, but the sorrow, here's the other part, see? But the sorrow of the world produces what? Death. Discipline, so Paul chooses his words, and he puts it in there, and he sends it off, and it's a long wait, and he's waiting for Titus to come back, and he is messed up about it, okay? He is grinding away on it, and he doubts himself and all that, which is so appropriate when you're a human dealing with spiritual things, and you think maybe you were too hard, but discipline that makes sorrowful unto repentance is how God wants us to respond. That's what Paul wanted, and in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, and this whole section here in Hebrews is about discipline and how it works, but here in particular is a passage that illustrates it so well for me. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. And the church was sorrowful, and so was Paul. It was hard on Paul too, and it's hard on you as a parent. See, Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So it's not pleasant, see. Earlier the writer in this, and I won't read it now, talked about a human father's discipline, and then it talks about God's discipline. And then it says in verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. So in other words, God doesn't enjoy it, and we don't enjoy giving it to our children. It's not enjoyable for anybody on either side of the equation. Okay, But when it is responded to correctly, the sorrow it causes is short-lived because it leads to repentance and salvation. And Paul said, said the hard things and they responded in sorrow and it was the right kind of sorrow. Now, it, it, and you can jot a few of these down if you want in your notes, you'll see them. It was not the sorrow of selfish sympathy. Poor me, here I am again, self-pity. Okay, That's not the sorrow that leads to repentance. That's not the sorrow that leads to salvation, okay? 
It's not the sorrow of getting caught in your sin and then your embarrassment that everybody knows and you don't want everybody to know. Okay, we run into that a lot, don't we? People get mad about a confrontational letter. Why? Not because their sorrow for their sinfulness and the wickedness that's caused so much hardship in the church and with individual people and in their own family. They're sorry that they're embarrassed and got embarrassed in front of the church and they don't like that. That's not the sorrow that leads to repentance and leads to salvation. Okay, That's the sorrow that leads to death. It's not the sorrow of despair. Oh, I'll never get this right. That's not the response either. You you can get it right. Okay, the Lord desires for all men to come to the knowledge of salvation. He desires to have a relationship with you. He proved that by sending his son. And that relationship there is that beacon that says, I love you. Okay? And I will receive you. So it's not, oh, I'll never get this right. It's not the sorrow of bitterness. You know, these church people won't let me alone. That's the next step after I got embarrassed. Now the church people won't leave me alone. That's the sorrow of that. Wow, I wish they'd leave me alone. That's not very loving. It's not the sorrow of injured pride. You know, I know better than this. You know, I've been a Christian longer than you have. I know I shouldn't have done that. That's not, that's not the sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation. Okay. You know, and I'm just kind of throwing things out as they've come back to me over the years. Um, it's not the sorrow that's often expressed in a manipulative remorse. Okay. Well, you're at fault too. You know, part of this is your fault. See, that happens a lot in couples. Yeah, I'm, I'm wrong, but you're wrong too. See, that's not the sorrow that leads to repentance. That's not the sorrow that leads to salvation. That's the sorrow that leads to death. Okay. And, and the thing that's wrong with these, and you see this on the screen, the things that's wrong with all these kinds of sorrows, they leave God out of the whole thing. So God's not involved in all, any of that. That leads to death, see. It, it was, it was the real thing. What the church had, it was the sorrow of a change in how they thought about the whole thing. It was the sorrow of turning around and going the other direction. No defensiveness, no victim mentality, no self-vindication, no self-justification, no self-defense, no resentment, no regret, no I miss my own life. You know, that's what he says. It leads to, it leads to, God produces repentance without regret, right? When you, when you truly repent, truly sorry, you change your mind about it, you never long for your old life back. The new life and the joy and the short-lived sorrow is so refreshing to you that God has forgiven you and you are no longer guilty of any of those things. See, A sorrow that leads to repentance without regret. See, Never wanting to go back. Just sorrow under repentance, the real deal, the real transformation, the real change. And then verse 10 says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. This is the kind of sorrow God wants you to have. See, This is the kind of sorrow Paul is communicating after you heard their response. He recognized what it was, for what it was, that it was the right kind of sorrow, that his hard words that he labored over so much with tears and that he really desired to produce obedience in them had produced that kind of fruit. See, It was consistent with God's will for them. It's consistent with God's will for us. Uh, the very kind of sorrow God intended for them to feel. Everybody wants to know, you know, what's God's will? You know, what is it? For the sorrow that's according to the will of God. There it is. Everybody wants, what's the will of God for my life? Well, there's one. A sorrow that leads to repentance. That's the will of God for you. Right? It's the will of God that you pray without ceasing and in everything give thanks. That If you want to know uh, instant blessing from God, you know, what's God's will for me? There, There's a few, just pretty clear. God's will for you. 
the will of God, sorrow that's according to the will of God, produces a repentance without regret. See, God approved of their sorrow. And it was that healing and transforming and uplifting sorrow over sin that God has at the core of it because it produces repentance. This is the ideal picture of a restored relationship. Okay, Not just, I'd like to have a relationship with you again, but coming there and really being sorry for what you've done. See, Works on all those levels. person responds with sorrow. Sorrow that is not in any sense self-preserving, but a sorrow that is the full admission of sin and a sorrow that leads to repentance. See, And, and why was this so comforting for Paul? Well, at the verse 9, let's pick that up. And I know we're kind of skipping around, but I, th- I think as we think through the thoughts and we capture each one, it takes us to the end. But I just want to look at this and we're going to close with this, okay? Paul says, For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. So what's he saying there? Well, that's really principle number 11. And faithful ministry and spiritual responses is this check on integrity, Okay. I mean, we, we kind of implied it with Paul that, you know, he he was grieving about it and that really showed the right heart attitude, that he had some questions about whether it was too hard and that showed that he didn't really rejoice in have, being hard on people. But this really kind of opens it up. It's, it's a check on integrity. The faithful minister wants to be able to confirm that he does what he does so that those that are in, her care, in their care come to no harm. So Paul says, I did what I did. I wrote what I wrote. I was sorry. I know you were sorrowful and... and I'm not, I'm not glad you were sorry, but I'm glad that you were sorry under repentance um, because I didn't want you to come, what, to any loss in anything through us, see. And as a minister, beloved, if you miss that opportunity that the Lord has put in front of you to correct, to instruct, to reprove, to rebuke, if you have to, then really what you're doing, and very similar to if you choose to not spank your children, you're really desiring their death. That's exactly what the Scripture says. If you choose to not do this, you miss this opportunity the Lord has put in front of you. Then really what you've thought is, um, I don't really care if they suffer loss. See, that's the other side of it. Paul says, I did all this so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. So my ministry, he says, was to be so consistent. I wanted to be so consistent, even as hard stuff, that you would not come to loss. That was my ultimate motivation. That was the integrity check, see. And how can they come to harm? Well, by Paul doing nothing. right? By not pursuing their holiness, by not confronting their sin, which, which is far easier, by the way. It's much easier not to write the letter. Okay, It's much easier not to have the conversation. And those of you who've had it, you know this. They, By Paul doing nothing, by you doing nothing, by me doing nothing, they would miss out on the blessings of God. They may lose their reward or the victorious life in Christ, certainly, by what they allow uh, the fruit of the Great Commission. There Certainly, there's a loss there because there's not going to be fruit there in their life of the Great Commission. Or the honor of being an ambassador of Christ that we saw earlier, or a minister of reconciliation because they're not going to be any of those things, see. Instead, they would have suffered much loss in their testimony, which can even harm how the world views God. Do you remember, and, and I, I say this just in passing, but... We, we studied this a long time ago in Romans chapter 2, verse 24. Um, and I don't have a slide for that. I just to, do you remember this? As he's talking to the Jews, he says this. He says, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as is written. Do you remember when we talked about that, that the way the Jews had patterned their life and the consistent uh, correction the Lord had to bring on them and all of the difficulty he brought on their life and, de- 
and carrying them off to foreign lands and their land lay desolate and all of that kind of stuff. And the temple is burned down and the city is wrecked. And, and, it, and Paul calls to mind all of that. He just says, listen, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What's that mean? Well, a worldly sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance for a believer leads to further chastening. And the life of the individual is a wreck. And you know this, you've seen people like this, just everything they touch just turns terrible, right? And they just seem to be constantly under the chastening of the Lord. They call themselves a believer, but everything that they do is, seems to be constant chastening. And the world looks at them, and they say they're a believer. And what does the world say? Man, I am so not interested in following the God that you follow. This is, my life is way better than yours. Now, their life is not better, okay? Because we know from 1 Corinthians 11, what? That that even when we are under chastening, we show that we're God's children. See, we know that we're God's children. And your brothers and sisters perhaps know because the chastening that's constantly on your life that you're God's child. But when the world looks at you like they did to the Jews, and they're just saying, man, oh, this, this God is so vindictive and so uncaring and, you know, no way, not interested. Look at their land. He carried them out of Egypt and brought them to, to Jerusalem to wreck them and carry them off to foreign lands. No thanks, not interested. This is precisely part of the loss that occurs, see? People look at a, at a, a believer who's living in open sinfulness and then there's chastening on their life constantly and they're just thinking, ah, I'm not interested, I'll pass. And that's what that means, see? Look at your life, dude, it's a mess. And certainly there's loss in all of that and loss of blessing and, and the greatest loss of all, the kind of sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance is the sorrow that leads to death, see. It can lead to death because you're not redeemed and that's physical and eternal death forever. It can lead to death when you are redeemed, which we've seen numerous times, as the Lord chastens you all the way up to death, right? As First Corinthians 5 says, turning that person over for the destruction of the body, that what? That the soul may be saved, see. So we, it's either way, See, so that's, you know, certainly huge loss. So, so sorrow that leads to repentance, that kind of sorrow is God's will. And this is it. We're gonna we're done. Second Corinthians two twenty four. And then with this we're gonna close today. It says this the Lord's bond servant, so we're talking about those who minister, these these are those who, who serve the church, must not be quarrelsome, not picking fights with people all the time, be able but be kind to all able to teach, patient when wronged. And we've looked at all that. Paul endured all kinds of hardship and harshness and all, endurance and all those kinds in his responses. Okay, we saw that. And so he's telling Timothy, this is what's going to happen. You're going to have to have endurance and all this kind of stuff. And he says, with gentleness, correcting those who are in a position. Opposition. So with gentleness, letting it go? With gentleness, not saying anything? No. And will the words have to be hard? Apparently. Very hard. So when gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, now, the gentleness may be measured by two different measures, right? The one who delivers it may think I was gentle and how I had to do it, but I still had to say hard things. And they may be content with that. And then the person who heard it, who isn't where they need to be, may say, well, they weren't gentle at all. They were very hard on you. Well, maybe, maybe not. It's hard to know that, right? Paul says, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, mark this, if perhaps... If perhaps, so you're doing all this so that God may grant them, here's our word, repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. So this is a believer who's caught up in a, a lie, a sin, uh, some hardship, uh, some difficulty, causing difficulty for the church, whatever it happens to be. And, and the minister is doing what he's supposed to do. 
May God grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, they'll be delivered from this delusion that they're currently living under, this perspective of the church or the person or whatever that they currently have. They'll be delivered from that. And then just to confirm that that's what it means, verse 26 says, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. So the whole point is where they are is not where the Lord wants them. They've been, they've believed something they shouldn't have believed, and it came from the one who always lies, okay? Having been held captive by him to do his will. So Paul did the writing. He did the speaking. You will do the writing. The ministers continue in this model. Sometimes the speaking is hard and direct, and it's a rebuke, and it's full of reproof. But ultimately, ultimately, Repentance is the work of God in the heart. Okay? That's what you pray for. No doubt Paul prayed for that over and over again as he delivered that letter to the Corinthians. He prayed for the repentance to be brought by the Lord, an understanding. They may be delivered from, from, uh, to the knowledge of the truth and come to their senses and escape the snare that they're in. See? So he's speaking, but repentance is the work of God in the heart. You, you say the things you have to say, but repentance is the work of God in the heart. That's what you're praying for. See? God had done his work in their heart and they had willingly responded. So it's not all on you. See, and the, and the response is not on you. Just the delivery should be correct. You should have sorrow with it. And then you give it to the Lord and you give it to them and just leave that in the work as God's work because he's the one who's going to create repentance, the correct kind of repentance. But that's what you look for. And the fruit of that we can see easily then as we examine what's going on afterwards. Okay. We're out of time, so we're going to close. So let's bow and be dismissed in prayer, if you don't mind, with us as we kind of just ask the Lord what he'd have us to do with all of this. Lord, we thank you today for just great opportunity to be together. So thankful for those who've come out today and, and just overcome fear and just been together as, as believers in fellowship. We thank you for preserving our community even up until this point and helping us. And I pray that we'll, as we said earlier today, several times, that we really want to be the hands and feet of Christ, that we want to uh, not live in fear and, and walk in such a way that people know that you're awesome and that we trust you and not being stupid or being irresponsible, but certainly and and following uh, the guidelines of, of those who are above us in law and then Lord, all those things. But we want to be a good testimony. So just show us what to do in these things. And Lord, in, in all of these things we just talked about as, as we as we think about confronting sin, which is ever present in the church constantly, and those who uh, or in the church sometimes get captured by that and they go off in that direction and they've been deceived and they will, or they're will, you know, they've been out of the word and their flesh is, is very strong draw. And Lord, I pray that you'll bring them back. Lord, I pray that those who have opportunity will give the heart, say the hard things with a desire to see restoration, not rejoicing in doing hard things, not rejoicing in, in being hard, but uh, rejoicing that you perhaps through the words that are said, the choices that are made in words can bring about your own work. Because you give us this job to do. It's your work, but it's been given to us as the carrier. I pray that we'll be faithful. Lord, so help us understand all these things as you would see fit. Help us to put them in place as you would help us understand them. Uh, Lord, I pray that if there's any here today who have not come to you in repentance, a change of mind about how they used to live, Lord, today is the day. And if that's you, you find as you look at your own life and you've just lived in such a way that you've always lived, even though it appears that you're a Christian and perhaps you do the right things so people think you are, but when it's just you, it's just you doing what the world does, then you've never come to a right understanding of, of repentance and so you don't have a uh, relationship with the Lord. So today we ask you, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. When you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you are confessing that he has said, 
uh, you must repent, calling all men everywhere to repent. Change your mind, and that repentance will produce fruit. It indicates salvation has come. And Lord, we pray that that will be today, perhaps the day. Those who hear the message now and those who hear it later will come to a saving knowledge of you through your Son. And we're so grateful for that message that continues to go out and for the message that continues to be responded to. It's so powerful. It opens us all up. It shows where the faulty parts are and then gives us the right ones to put in. Have your work here, Lord, through you, Holy Spirit. Pray to watch over our, our flock. That it be your will that you keep us from uh, the sickness that's going around. And I pray that you will do all these things according to your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Now God's people said, Amen. <laughs>